0: We have so much technology that we nail on the hardware side of things, be it from gas turbines and what we're doing there with hydrogen and to hydro and nuclear with the SMR to onshore and offshore wind. Now that we have the visions for really leveraging software to bring this all together, that's the thing that just uh, gets me more and more excited about net zero becoming a reality for so many folks.
1: Good day, everyone, and welcome to Cutting Carbon. I'm your host, Jeff Goldmere, and I'm joined by my
2: co-host, Brian Gutnick. Brian, good day. Good day, Jeff. I'm excited for this episode. Over nine seasons, we've talked a lot about a wide range of technologies, most of it hardware. That's going to play a critical role in the energy transition, and today we get to talk about software, digital. I'm excited.
1: Yeah, so Brian, uh, all of our listeners today, we have Scott Reese. Scott is the CEO of our digital business within GE Vernova. Scott. Welcome to Cutting Carbon.
0: Jeff, thanks for having me, Brian. Likewise to you. Like you said, you know, you're excited to have a chance to talk about digital and the impact of software. You're not half as excited as I am. This is a topic that's near and dear to my heart and one that I think as we talk more and more about the energy
2: transition that we just need to keep front and center. Perfect. Perfect. So, Scott, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about G. Renova's digital business? Yeah, absolutely. You
0: know, when we announced the formation of GE Vernova and really bringing our 12 energy focused businesses together to act as one company, I was really excited to hear that there was a big software aspect to that, because our point of view is that the energy transition is obviously multifaceted. But we just don't believe it can happen without software. There's so much complexity at stake, and GE is so far ahead on all things hardware, from conventional power to everything that's going on in wind and SMR. We really believe that we have an opportunity to accelerate all of that through the use of software and, dare I say, AI. But it's one of the things that got me so excited about joining this mission, and never once have I had that excitement slow down. Because I think that GE Vernova as we head into the launch of the company, is just gaining so much momentum and we're on top of so many really important things for the world.
1: Neat. I wanna follow up on that, Scott, right? You talk about how important software is, but I'm not sure our listeners clearly understand what digital does for our customers today, what digital systems do in the pivotal role. So before we start talking about the energy transition, maybe we could just focus on what does digital do today and how does it help our customers and I think maybe three segments, the energy space, industrial space, and maybe manufacturing. What do you see the role of digital to help support those customers and those industries today?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Right, It all starts with focus. What is it that we're trying to do? And, And when we think about our digital solutions, it really spans across three elements of the energy transition. How is power generated? Making sure that that is optimized and efficient, second is how is that power then ultimately distributed out to the point of consumption and optimizing and the operations of everything to do with the transmission and distribution of those electrons. And then ultimately optimizing the consumption of that electricity. So how's it generated, how's it distributed and how it's consumed? Those are the three big pillars of our strategy that we're really trying to tackle with our digital solutions.
1: I wonder, are there any examples you can give us around some of the software products and maybe kind of how they're used by our customers today?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So on the power generation piece, that's where, for example, we have asset performance management, APM, that connects into the sensors on heavy equipment. In a lot of cases, it's a gas turbine, and it's really just collecting data in real time from that gas turbine making sure that it is running efficiently. If we hear an odd vibration or if we sense that something is out of kilter, there are things that we can do to auto-tune the controller or alert people that, hey, the thing is still working, but it's not as efficient as it could be and maybe help them sort it out before it ever becomes a a real issue and no one ever loses power. So that's on the power generation side of things. On the distribution side of things, this is where things get really interesting because... There's so much disruption taking place on the grid, and I would argue that the state of the grid has reached a a reasonably urgent condition, if you will, and this goes worldwide, and we can dig into that a lot more. But what we're really trying to do there is to move the grid from something that you operate manually, in a lot of cases with a mouse, to something that's orchestrated with software, and we can talk about all the different elements that need orchestrated. And then on the consumption side of things, for us, that's much more of a decarbonization focus, and our big focus there is in manufacturing. Industrial applications are responsible for roughly a third of greenhouse gas emissions, and anything that we can do to drive efficiency in manufacturing operations and eliminate waste in those operations, we believe plays a big role in decarbonization of that industry. So across the three pillars of our strategy, that gives you a little bit of a feel for what we try to do.
2: Perfect, perfect. Scott, in your introduction, you talked about your excitement around the energy transition not really being able to happen without software. Can you maybe elaborate on that a little bit? How can software and digital actually maybe accelerate the energy transition?
0: let's just dig into the grid a little bit and think about so what's the problem with the grid for most of us we come to the office we flip on a light switch and it works i never really had the full appreciation for all of the complexity behind that light switch to make that happen day in and day out and it's only increasing if you think about those grid operators and what they have to deal with we're putting a lot more renewable power on the grid which is great clean energy we're driving onshore offshore wind and solar all on the grid But for a grid operator, yeah, that's great. But it also introduces something that they've never had to deal with before, which is variability. When a gas turbine is running, that's what I would call a deterministic supply of power. If it's running, you're getting electrons. you got nothing to worry about. But what happens when a large percentage of your supply is wind and the wind's not blowing or solar and the the sun's not shining? That's okay; You plan for that in your capacity. But like... That has to be orchestrated and things that need to be orchestrated, I would refer to as what's called a computable problem. We can forecast the weather. We know the, the wind patterns and the, the thermal patterns of the sun, and we can forecast that against demand and be able to compute the demands and the loads and be able to more effectively match supply and demand so that we never have an unstable grid. Renewables onto the grid is only one example of really the pressures that utilities are facing that software can help with. Storms, they're more frequent and more intense, and that's just a reality of of today. What do we do to predict the direction of the storm and the intensity of the storm and the ultimate impact on the grid? We can predict those things, even to the point of in Hurricane Idalia, for example, we were able to reach out to one of our customers and say, hey, Based on the direction of this hurricane and the intensity that we believe it's going to bring, here are 19 elements of your vegetation that we think you should get out and cut before the storm ever gets here, because you know a few days ahead. And they were able to dispatch crews and trim in a very targeted way 19 points of vegetation and eliminate outages. These are computable problems, and that's really what software brings to the energy transition.
2: Fascinating. And, and Scott, I imagine you do the same thing on the demand side as well. You were talking about efficient use or consumption of electricity. My guess is that enables you to also predict and maybe in some cases control that, whether that's timing of charging a vehicle or things like that.
0: Without any question, right? Think about DERMs or distributed energy resources. You know, We're all putting solar panels, we have electric cars and That's creating yet another pressure on the grid, which is bi-directional flow of electrons. You know, utilities have only had electricity flow in one direction on the grid in the past, and now they're flowing in different directions. I don't know exactly when you're gonna park your car and plug in or put solar back onto the grid because you didn't consume it all. It's just a lot of pressure for a utility to be able to deal with. My point is that none of these are going away or none of these pressures are gonna get any smaller at a time when demand is at an all-time high and projected to triple over the next few decades. We really need to view the need to modernize the grid as an urgent situation and really recognize the ability of software to accelerate that modernization.
1: Scott, I want to pull in a little thread. You've given some great examples, forecasting head of storms, clearing vegetation, the complexity of, of a grid that's no longer unidirectional. My sense is, as the demand for electrification increases, more resources are going on, more distributed, a simple rules-based system where people are monitoring it has its limits. Where do you see maybe the role of AI? What is it doing today? And, And maybe where do you see the role of that in the future with your team?
0: Yeah, AI plays to me directly into a computable problem. The foundation of being able to either leverage AI or just compute in general is having good data. Because if you don't have good data, there's just no way for you to succeed in really driving the level of automation that you need. That's why I just recently we did an acquisition of a company called Greenbird Technologies. That was all about bringing all of the data that a utility really needs to orchestrate their operation with together. Not necessarily centralizing the data, but connecting to the data sources where you have a federated view out into the entire grid and the entire ecosystem that you need to ultimately orchestrate. But, you know, you can only imagine the role of AI. You know, I think as humans, we're terrible consumers of electricity. We try to do better. We try to turn the lights off. We try to put in LEDs, but there are so many decisions that again are computable that can be just made for us that don't change the quality of our life. I just think that AI, once we have a common data fabric across the energy ecosystem, is going to be able to orchestrate, if you will, at a much broader level, a lot of those decisions that really help accelerate the energy transition without impacting anyone's quality of life.
2: Fascinating.
1: You're listening to Cutting Carbon. If you're interested in learning more about today's topic, please check out our show notes. And if you like what you hear, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's go back to the conversation.
2: with the energy transition companies are having to make commitments of their own and carbon reductions and setting goals and then trying to figure out how they're going to achieve that and measure that can you talk a little bit i believe you've recently launched a, a software solution to help with that maybe talk a little bit about that
0: we did so just recently we launched something that we call Sirius, which is all around carbon management and for me Sirius goes back to data to be able to plan, you really need to have all of the data together so that you know what you're working with. And then you know ultimately what your goal is. And now it's just a goal-seeking algorithm, if you will. It's not unlike planning for retirement, if you will, right? We've all gone to a retirement website and punched in all the numbers. And then it says to retire by that date, you need to make $7 billion a year from this point forward. We're like, oh man, What are my other options? (laughs) You know, so that's called a goal seek and whether it's reaching net zero by a particular date or whatever, what Sirius is doing is helping our utility customers understand their current landscape, understand that goal, and then give them better scenario planning as to, okay, well, given where you are and given your goal, here are some options for you to ultimately reach that goal in that time frame. And then if it's unattainable, they can change some of the parameters and the variables and they can scenario plan effectively. Okay, what can we do? Otherwise, you just see too many plans that are established as a goal with no idea how to get there. And that's just going to lead to a bunch of disappointment that we can't live with. So Sirius is all about bringing the data together, putting in your goal seek and helping to really get a plan that's going to help all of those goals become a reality instead of a disappointment.
1: And obviously, Scott, that's going to be a flexible tool because I think about our customers and the diversity of generations. Some are going to be more heavily leaning on wind and solar. Some are going to be continuing to use gas assets for a little longer, and then be transition to carbon capture. And so I'm assuming this tool really allows our customers to put in what their fleet looks like today and, and which technology trajectory they want, or try different scenarios with different technology trajectories and do the what-if questions, if you will
0: recognize that we're on version one of this tool so it'll only get better over time but when i refer to a computable problem parameters are the way algorithms work so you'll ultimately have the ability to say hey don't include solar in my plan for whatever reason or don't include wind or or whatever for whatever reason and then it can effectively compute in that direction given the parameters that you've set forth again it's all about understanding where you are, where you want to go, and then helping you understand what the realistic options are to get from where you are to ultimately where you want to be. One of my favorite quotes is, hope is not a strategy. There are just too many of us with hope as a strategy on reaching net zero. Sirius is all about eliminating hope as your only strategy and putting a tangible action plan in place to help you make progress.
2: And
1: I'm curious, Scott, maybe not so much of a software question, but as we obviously are considering doing more of these computable, as you said, these are computable solutions. We can run the algorithms to get answers to help our customers plan for the future, but that means they've got to have the computing assets to run these scenarios. And help me understand, does this mean that every one of our utility customers has to have a supercomputer, or are these systems that maybe need a highly powered computing desktop, but we're not talking everyone needs a supercomputer in their office? Compute uh,
0: accessibility and availability and it is just not the problem anymore. I think the iPhone 8 had more compute power than any space shuttle in history. I mean, that's a cell phone in your pocket. If you hear that compute is the problem, some may not understand the problem. So no, it's it's really just about, let's get focused in on what problem are we trying to solve and let's get serious about getting after it and solving it.
1: Great, so it sounds like that from a a computing power, that's not the barrier. The barrier is, do we understand The questions we're trying to ask, do we have the right data? Are we asking the right questions to set up the algorithms and just let your laptop just crunch it away for a couple hours or a couple days? But the barrier is not the processing power.
0: You nailed it. You hear so many people say, oh, AI is going to eliminate the human. AI is not going to eliminate the human. It's going to make the human a lot more useful because the human's role is in setting up the problem, understanding the problem, framing the problem, because you can only compute well-defined problems. Because if you don't define the problem well, you're just going to end up with an answer that's not super useful. You definitely framed it well, that compute is not the problem. Framing up what problem we're trying to solve, tuning the algorithm to help goal seek is the work that we have ahead of us.
2: Scott, I was just going to ask, does opening up this software layer and this compute expose, I mean, obviously, energy security is incredibly important. Does it open up the possibility or the concern of cyber threats, et cetera? How do you address that?
0: One of the top concerns for all of us, and it's not just to do with software, there's so much social engineering, cybersecurity of the world's critical infrastructure is, as you might imagine, beyond critical. And so for everything that we're building and I suspect most providers out there today in the modern world use something called a zero trust security framework. It is the underpinning of our grid OS platform, for example, for running the grid. And zero trust means that even though you're in the office, for example, the computer should never necessarily trust without some level of verification that you are who you say you are. So that's called multi-factor authentication. Most of us use that now for just about everything, whether it's banking or email or whatever. That's where you log in and then it sends you a text message. And that's pretty simple. And we've all gotten on board with multi-factor authentication. But it goes to the next level now with software, not trusting software, because historically, If I knew what was called an API call, an application programming interface, I just had to know the name and I could now communicate with it. But what if a bad actor knows your API call? You don't want a bad actor interacting with your API. So they have things called keys that rotate on a very frequent basis. The software doesn't necessarily trust the software anymore. It constantly verifies Hey, are you the software that I think you are? And please just verify that. Zero trust architecture, whether it's using software keys and rotation or multi-factor authentication, these are just table stakes. You know, I remember a time where some of us were grumpy about multi-factor authentication. I'm in the office, of course it's me. Why do I have to take this extra step? As humans, we've kind of gotten over that. And we've just recognized that, yeah, the world's an odd place in this cyber universe. An extra click is not gonna ruin anyone's day. We're just taking that all the way through not just our human interactions with our software, but the software's interaction
1: with the software. Yeah, I think, Scott, if you said to someone, hey, are you OK with the multi-factor authorization as a way to stop someone from getting your credit card number and uh, running up a vacation to Haiti on your account, I think most of us would say, OK, if you translated that to would you rather have that for your energy system so threat actor can't come along and take the grid down? I think we'd all be OK with that extra step
0: absolutely but we say that and now that you say it in the year 2023 you're like of course but it wasn't that long ago i remember some users mostly internal going like why do we have to take this extra step thankfully the world is just on board with cybersecurity being the number one thing but we can never be too comfortable the very second that we feel comfortable that's the very second that we're going to be at risk without any question cybersecurity is top of mind for us and certainly for every customer
1: So Scott, we already talked about Greenbird, but that's just one of the acquisitions you and the team have done recently. We also acquired Opus One solutions. And maybe as we think about the context of this digital landscape, maybe you can help us understand where where Opus One fits into the bigger picture as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the macro theme, if you will, for us is something that we call Grid OS, the orchestration system for the grid. And that's the strategy and vision that we have for the future. Opus One fits into that because Opus One was a startup that had invested in really orchestrating DERMs, these distributed energy resources, be it your electric vehicle fleet or your solar on your house, and really helping utilities get visibility into all of those, right? Because it was a little bit wild, wild west when all of that first started and utilities are like, whoa, where are these electrons coming from? And what, wait, it's going the wrong way. What's the planes, trains, and automobiles? How do you know where I'm going? Opus One for us was an investment in helping utilities really understand what was going on on their grid from a DERMS perspective. But again, it feeds back into that broader vision of GridOS, which is orchestrating the entire grid, not just the DERMS piece, the renewables piece, the conventional power piece. These things are all a reality, and if you only pay attention to one piece of that, You know, you're gonna get disappointed at some point when your grid ultimately loses inertia and you don't understand the physics that's happening there. So Opus One has been a real driver for a lot of our utilities in bringing that on and gaining that visibility. Now, I will say that DERMS is a little bit of a forward-looking topic for a lot of our utilities customers because they know that these assets are feeding into their grid, but there aren't enough of them for a lot of them at this stage for it to really be a problem. But they know it's going to be a problem at some point when renewables you know gets to say 40 50 60 percent of the makeup of your generation that's where orchestration becomes not important it becomes critical we're trying to really stay ahead of where the challenges are going to be for our utility customers but ultimately these things aren't going to be optional these are going to be critically important for running a grid
1: definitely sounds like our utility customers are trying to get ahead of the curve if you will But I'm wondering, Scott, what's the interface? We talk about our utility customers, but our utility customers, to some degree, have a responsibility to the TSOs and the ISOs. That's the transmission system operators, the independent system operators. Those are the entities that are orchestrating the orchestras, maybe, if we're going to follow that analogy. They're thinking about the utilities in their region and what assets are available because they've sort of got ultimate responsibility for keeping the grid up and running. And are they looking at these same sort of tool sets more at the macro level?
0: Without any question, the challenges are very similar, you know, just slightly different when you think about the generation side of things. But being able to see the demand, understand the demand patterns, and understand the dynamics that lead to a, a good power generation day and a challenging generation day, and being able to, again, balance those things out is critical for everyone, whether it's utility or the ISO, the same problem exists, just in slightly different ways.
2: Scott, the pace of change, uh, the topics we're talking about, using AI, the growth uh, in compute power, et cetera, you're helping to pull together software to enable that technology today. I'm curious, what's on your mind? What excites you about the future and and where we can even go beyond that? And as you answer that as well, how do you think about the future with digital as part of GE Vernova and that future as well?
0: So, you know, it was a conversation that I had with one of the founders of Google Brain recently, and, you know, I was asking him why he thought AI is just gaining so much steam, right? And he was telling me about a white paper that he wrote around AI and all of the things that we're now talking about every day in the early 2000s, and his view It wasn't until AI and the understanding of a neural network got matched up with the amount of compute power that it now has access to, that it woke up and started working, right? And I think he said it was like in 2012, 2013, when he went like, holy crap, this stuff's going to work. It's taken all of that time really to get to where we are. And it is compounding at a semi-alarming rate, but it gets exciting when you think about What historically impossible problems are we now able to talk about addressing? And, you know, I think that's all of our challenge with AI in general. There's a lot of what I would call AI washing that happens. When you're in doubt, just say AI. People go like, okay, cool. But it is really important that we stay focused on what problem are we trying to solve with AI. And what excites me is if we can use our collective intelligence, you know, across this globe to focus in on the right problems, like the energy transition with the amount of compute we have available, with the understanding that we now have of AI, I feel like anything is possible. So all of those very bold, aggressive goals that everyone has set for net zero, let's focus in, let's leverage the assets that we have available to us and make those things a reality, right?
1: Scott, this is a superb conversation, right? We've talked about- Acquisitions, the role of digital, AI, computing power, the future of, of industry, really exciting all as we think about the power of software, topic that, to your point, 20 years ago, we wouldn't have had this conversation, but today, it's, we just all take it for granted. It, it's integrated into our lives without even realizing it. So thank you.
2: just saying, I learned I have the power of the space shuttle in my pocket.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, you have way more than that now. That was like in 2008, right? The thing that just gives me great hope, though, you know, as we think about GE Vernova coming together as well, though, is that we have so much technology that we know on the hardware side of things, be it from Gas turbines and what we're doing there with hydrogen and to hydro and nuclear with the SMR to onshore and offshore wind. Now that we have the visions for really leveraging software to bring this all together, that's the thing that just uh, gets me more and more excited about net zero becoming a reality for so many folks. I thank the two of you for continue to drive this dialogue on this broad platform that we have and just really keeping the right topics at the top of everybody's mind. And um, you know, this is something we're gonna go do together.
1: Awesome. Scott, again, on behalf of Brian, myself and the whole team, wanna thank you for spending part of your day with us today. And for all of our, our listeners and subscribers, thank you for listening in. Again, check out our show notes for more information. And as always, if you have questions for Scott or any of our guests this season, please don't hesitate to drop us a note at cutting.carbon@ge.com. Again, thanks everyone for listening. This is Cutting Carbon. Scott, that was freaking awesome! It was a lot of fun to talk about this. This was—we got into a lot of fun stuff. We could—we could go on and on and on.